everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. This is the Progressive Commentary Hour. Our theme today, taking an honest look at what we could do to help if we've been vaccinated with injuries, if we've been vaccinated but fear that we may get injured, if we've not been vaccinated but have had COVID and want to help our immune system, or if we haven't been vaccinated and haven't had COVID, we just want to have a healthier and stronger immune response. What can we do if we should be infected? With over 94% of the American population now exposed to COVID and the mainstream medical community having no really good solutions, this is a solution-oriented hour. There is a Dr. McCullough. He is one of the most cited scientist physicians in the world. Over 700 peer-reviewed journal publications. He has been a consultant to all the major medical groups. And he has three different board certifications. He's been a professor at three different major teaching hospitals and universities. He's an insider's insider. And yet, when he saw problems and he saw inconsistencies and he saw things that clearly were not correct, he jumped in and he began to use treatments early on where the average physician said, no, you, the FDA and Anthony Fauci said, don't treat anyone for anything. Just keep them quarantined until they have to go to the hospital. He said, no, we have a duty to treat. And because of that, a lot of patients are alive who otherwise would not be. He's going to take us on a journey, share protocols, share the story that we were not told. Now to our guest. Dr. Stephen McCullough, he is a board certified, three board certifications. He has a background in epidemiology. He has a strong background also in studying viruses, cardiology, um, and he has been previously a professor at several very prestigious uh, teaching institutes. He's published over 700, at least maybe more, but I'm aware of 700 peer-reviewed journal articles. And he was one of the first physician scientists in the United States, in fact, the world, to begin to publish articles challenging aspects of COVID protocols. He was not anti-vaccine. In fact, he's taken a lot of vaccines. But he and some other colleagues who are now working together began to see that the information that was being brought forth simply didn't make sense on a scientific level. Um, and among the most important messages that Dr. McCullough shared with his colleagues and by extension through uh, hearings, one in the state of Texas, one in the U.S. Senate, was that it is the moral responsibility of every physician to treat a patient in front of them with whatever they know might be able to work, especially if FDA approved off-label drugs. And he began to do that and began to see improvements. And then by working with other physicians and contacting them around the world, especially in Italy, et cetera, there were very innovative and courageous people who were trying this. And yet we were told, don't do anything. No, no, let them stay quarantined until they're so sick they have to be rushed to an emergency room and frequently intubated. And a lot of those people died and or given a drug. And that drug was not given proper clinical trials. In fact, when we look at the background on the drug, and I have on the actual test, it was in Africa, 
and it wasn't even for the, uh, this particular virus. Uh, and yet it was approved, and we've been using it ever since. So that's where the story begins. Now, I'm going to ask Dr. McCall in a moment to give us his background on this, his evolution of understanding what worked and what didn't. And here's where we're at. And this is the larger overarching issue. Most Americans were vaccinated. Many, especially older people, multiple times. People in professional settings, hospitals, college professors, high school teachers, nurses, have received multiple vaccines. You can't say it's a vaccine and a booster. You can say it's a vaccine. So they've had two, three, four. And yet, we were told, do this and you won't infect anyone. That wasn't true. We were told, do this, you're not going to get COVID. That wasn't true. And do this, you're not going to go to the hospital and die. And that wasn't true. In fact, there are studies today showing that the majority of people going to hospital and dying have been fully vaccinated. So the question is, if we've gotten this misinformation, what can we do? So let's say you're a person that's been vaccinated and you haven't gotten sick, no side effects, and thank goodness, we're happy for that. But now you find out that there are delayed reactions. And the more vaccines you get, the more probable that you'll get one of those reactions, especially if you already have some comorbidities. And also some young people. If young people are healthy and have no comorbidities, then where is the actual peer-reviewed science and clinical studies showing that they need and would benefit from the vaccine? But they go ahead and get it anyhow. And now they're mandating in different states that every year, along with the Gardasil and other vaccines, you must get the COVID vaccine. Where is the proof? But when you're in power, you don't have to show proof. Your power is your proof. You're deferred to because you are the person in charge. And there's an assumption, and it's a wrong assumption, that if the most important or powerful person is the one who should be listened to and ultimately has the yes, no, stop, go uh, on all things, that doesn't mean that they are right. It doesn't mean they're the best and brightest. These are false assumptions. Just like we're told if you go to Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Stanford, you will get a better education. You will be uh, getting the best that there is, and you'll be smarter, and therefore you'll have an advantage over a person going to a state university or non-Ivy League college. That is absolutely not true, but we believe the illusion. As F. Somerset Maugham, one of the greatest essayists in American history, said, do not allow the public behind the curtain because you'll disappoint them. They'll become angry at you because it was the illusion that they wanted to see. With that, we have to ask four issues. You've been vaccinated with no side effects. What can you do to lessen the likelihood of those side effects? You have not been vaccinated, but you've had COVID. And what can you do to prevent further damage to your immune system, even if you might have protective antibodies for a period of time? And we don't know what time that is because it's still ongoing. Um, and can you help yourself there? What happens if you've had long COVID and you just simply can't get your full health back? What can we do to help those individuals? And what happens if you're sick and there are enormous number of people who are sick, you wouldn't know it. There's no media coverage of their stories. There's no human interest story. And yet when they go to the doctor, and here's the strange part, 
when they go to a doctor with some exotic symptoms, a twitching, uh, uh, all types of blood abnormalities, heart irregularities, normal heart rate, maybe 60 beats per minute, now it's 100, and they can't control it. They get the test, and more often than not, the doctors do not know what's going on. They have a phenomenon they see, but they can't explain the mechanisms. Can we help those people? And when you look worldwide, you're talking about probably in the neighborhood of, I'm going to guess, seven to eight million people with serious side effects, many of them permanent. So those are the issues I would like for you to address. The forum is yours, Dr. McCullough. Well, thanks so much for that introduction. So much to unpack there. I guess the top line conclusion is that the global mass vaccination program for COVID-19 has been an unqualified debacle. Uh, we always consider safety first. Uh, there have been record numbers of deaths, injuries, and disabilities that have occurred after the vaccine, uh, unlike any other medicinal product introduced in the history of mankind. Just to zero in on U.S. data and uh, put a punctuation mark on this, our CDC keeps the vaccine adverse event reporting system. Uh, this is a, a system that the CDC verifies each and every death reported to them. We know 86% of the time, doctors, nurses, coroners, they're reporting to VAERS. It's an owner's reporting system. Shockingly, as of December 9th, 2022, our CDC has recorded 15,732 Americans that have died shortly after the vaccine. 22% of them have died within 96 hours of taking the vaccine. There's now a long tail of deaths as more and more reporting. By FDA testimony, multiple experts have tried to estimate the under-reporting factor for this. That means uh, a large number of deaths. If the vaccine card isn't available, it simply can't be reported into the database. The under-reporting factor is estimated to be at 30. That's probably conservative. So 30 times 15,000, that means the estimate is 450,000 Americans have died after COVID-19 vaccination. And that the deaths, as they're rigorously analyzed in terms of the vignettes and VARES, as done by McLaughlin and colleagues early in the pandemic, 86% of the time, there is no other explanation outside of the vaccine. We now see autopsy data, a paper by Schwab and colleagues from Heidelberg, Germany, people who have died within 20 days of taking the vaccine, 71% of the time, it is a known and acknowledged uh, fatal vaccine complication, such as myocarditis, heart damage and inflammation, fatal blood clots, fatal intracranial hemorrhages or neurologic syndromes. So from autopsy data to the big uh, electronic databases, the VAR system, UK yellow card system, the EU UDRIS system, WHO VIGISA system, 39 systems across the world. Every single one is ringing alarm bells. They've been doing this since January of 2021. Now we have multiple calls to pull the vaccines off the market. World Council for Health, June 11th, 2022, after multiple stern warnings, uh, declared, pull them off the market, not unsafe for human use. I've just testified in the U.S. Senate December 7th, 2022, after multiple stern warnings, including my Texas Senate testimony, you mentioned March of 2021, uh, I have officially uh, called for all the vaccines to be pulled off the U.S. market. Andrew Bridgeton, member of parliament in the U.K., also called for all the vaccines to be pulled off the U.K. market. Malcolm Roberts in Australia, Christine 
uh, Anderson in the Germany, the EU Parliament, and across India now. So, Gary, I am telling you, there are worldwide authoritative calls to pull all the COVID-19 vaccines off the market. It's a little late, but it's still an important move. <clears throat> a question, please. For the first time that I'm aware of in American medical or scientific history, there was an article, and I believe an intentionally, it's my impression this was an intentionally floated idea to see how the public would respond, both the lay and the professional public, to give amnesty to everyone involved, everyone at every level. And I'm thinking, that's odd. Why would you offer amnesty when no one in a sense, position of power has said they've done anything wrong? You don't offer amnesty to people who have not been uh, shown or acknowledged this. I mean, this is not like the South African Truth and Reconciliation, where you had to admit everything you did wrong. And if you did admit it and were honest, then you would not be punished for that. If you didn't and you were found to have lied, you'd be punished for that. And yet here we're telling people, you don't have to confess anything. We're just going to forgive all of you. Does that make any sense to you? Well, let's analyze that. You're referring to the essay by Emily Oster, faculty at uh, Brown University in Economics, where uh, she put out a global call for amnesty for mistakes made. Let's take the biggest mistake made. Uh, that is to introduce genetic vaccines on the U.S. market that were unsafe, uh, ineffective, and have ruined the lives of, of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of, of people in our country. That mistake of uh, the CDC, NIH, and FDA consistently stating that they are safe and effective with no qualifiers without budging off of that stance, that mistake would have to be readily acknowledged. And people would have to say they made a mistake, that in fact, there were injuries, disabilities, and deaths on a large scale. We're talking about a massive mistake. That's a, that's a mistake worse than going into war. And that would, that would have to be acknowledged. That's step one. Step two would then be repentance. They'd have to say they're sorry for doing this. They're sorry. They'd have to tell Americans they were sorry about this. Step three would be forgiveness. People who were injured and disabled, the family members of those who died, they'd actually have to offer forgiveness to, in some capacity for these mistakes. And then finally, amnesty. That is some type of judgment that there, there wouldn't be any other um, a reprisal that happens to those who make a mistake. This, this is a vast multi-step process. Uh, people in my circles, those who have fought to treat patients, save as many lives, warn people about the risks and benefits of the vaccines. Uh, in our circles, uh, we reject this idea of jumping to amnesty. This is way too big for this. We have to go step by step. And in fact, there's an important evaluative phase, and that's called justice. And through investigation and the delivery of justice, I think ultimately we can get to the close of the crisis. But we've got a long ways to go. Well said. Thank you. Could you now share with the audience the significance of what you and others like Dr. Pierre Corey were doing at the very beginning of this? And even when your state medical boards were telling you, warning you early on, don't use remdesivir. Uh, don't use uh, hydroxychloroquine, uh, don't use anything. I mean, they weren't even suggesting uh, using vitamin C or D or building up the immune system, nothing. 
and yet this was severely affecting the immune system. But you all saw that there was a flaw in this. Now, mind you, we have more or less 900,000 physicians in the United States. I don't know how many. I'd be guessing to say maybe a few hundred decided to quietly treat their patients with what they knew based upon the symptoms they were seeing. And, but a few of you didn't stay quiet. And to me, this is heroic. You took it upon yourself, risking your careers, your livelihood, your reputation, because now we know from Twitter, of all things, uh, and Elon Musk buying Twitter, we know the truth that anyone who criticized anything on the official uh, line of what the protocols of, of COVID were smeared, blocked, couldn't get their information out. So the truth was hidden by malice of forethought and intent, and it's still unfolding. Facebook, the same meeting, the FBI, Google, and then, of course, there's the terrible Wikipedia. So you had no friends in the medical community in hierarchical positions. The one exception would be the British Medical Journal and its senior editor. He has been telling the truth nonstop. But the world of medicine seems not to care about him. One of the most respected journals in the world, and he's saying, slow down, we're doing this wrong, that nothing. So tell us the story, take us on that journey where you saw the results in your own patients, others saw the results, you shared this information in common, because that's where the preventative protocols that we're going to be talking about in depth in a moment, that's where it began. I want your audience to be able to, um, to locate and verify everything I say. And that's the reason why I'm pinpoint with dates and references. So June 27th, 2022, I testify in the Texas Senate to the Committee on Health and Human Services on two major points. I said throughout this novel coronavirus pandemic, there has always been a duty to treat or a duty to refer. Anytime a patient who has a potentially fatal disorder presents to a doctor, there is a duty to treat that patient, to do everything humanly possible to save that life. And if a doctor can't do it, to refer to someone who could. And there is always a community standard of care, always. And the community standard of care is determined by doctors who are treating patients uh, using the, their, the skill and the art of medicine, interpreting the literature, using available drugs, other interventions. And the community of standard of care can start with a single doctor in a single community, and then it builds and it changes over time. But none of these two principles of medicine in any way can be impeded or shaped or influenced by state medical boards, by uh, U.S. federal agencies, CDC, NIH, and FDA. And historically, they have played no role in the duty to treat or the community standard of care. None. So for the first time in this novel coronavirus pandemic, for the very first time, we saw these agencies impairing community standard of care. This was a stunning result as doctors in my circles, and you're right, I estimate about 500 doctors out of a million stepped forward and attempted to reduce two bad outcomes in this illness, hospitalization and death. And as we did so, we used the best drugs uh, in our toolbox to do this. We followed clear FDA guidance in 2018 on the FDA website. It says specifically doctors should use uh, available drugs, even off their original advertising labels, when they find it them filling an unmet need. 
And initially, we used products like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, and it evolved over time. We found useful uh, virucidal nasal sprays and oral gargles and oral anti-inflammatories, corticosteroids, anticoagulants. Uh, and we did the best we could. We innovated with our protocols. I was the first to publish a, a treatment protocol in a major peer-reviewed journal, the American Journal of Medicine, in August of 2020. The Association of American Physicians and Surgeons had a full home treatment guide by October of 2020. Frontline Critical Care Network, a totally different group, had the very first inpatient protocol in March of 2020. They had published on their website. Didier Rialt in France and Matthew Lagier and Dr. Milan opened up a treatment field hospital in Marseille and began to publish their work. They treated thousands of individuals. George Freed and Brian Tyson treated thousands of patients in, in South Central California and published a monograph in their book of their data. So what I'm telling you is all over the world, doctors concluded to the best of their ability using drugs and sequence combination following the uh, limited uh, randomized trials and observational data that we could prevent hospitalization and death. And this was capstoned in a paper by Gukliaklis and colleagues in December of 2020 that concluded that by December of 2020, we had clear and convincing evidence, that means a p-value less than 0.01, that early treatment was substantially reducing the risks of hospitalization and death in patients with acute COVID-19. And that's what it was all about. Sadly, what happened is the majority of patients who are hospitalized and died with this illness received no early treatment. And a paper by Verdkirk and colleagues, thousands of patients had undergone a survey, those who are hospitalized and died by their own report received no early treatment. We found even patients who received some outpatient early treatment, and it didn't really matter the exact combination of drugs, but we had to address viral replication, inflammation, and thrombosis, blood clotting, that if they got uh, you know, a form of combination treatment, even in hospital outcomes, they were survivable. What we found is that our National Institutes of Health put out the first guideline October of 2020, and the guideline said patients should not be treated as an outpatient. They completely contradicted uh, my uh, published McCulloch Protocol and the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. This is the first time the government directly contraindicates uh, and directly um, contradicts a physician organization. They say that patients should not receive any treatment whatsoever. They can come in the hospital and still receive no treatment whatsoever until they go on oxygen, and then they receive remdesivir. Remdesivir was one of the first emergency use authorized inpatient drugs. It's an intravenous polymerase inhibitor, uh, but the clinical trials quickly uh, demonstrated that it didn't work, and the WHO which did the largest study on remdesivir, held an urgent meeting in November of 2020, reviewed all the data, had a human ethics panel, European Society of Critical Care, carefully vetted, and, and much to, I think, their disappointment, but also to their integrity, they declared that remdesivir should not be used in hospitalized patients with COVID-19. This is a very strong warning from a worldwide agency. November 2020, at that time, Every single state in the United States, every single country should have pulled remdesivir off the shelves. It should not have been used. And what happened in the United States will go down in history as one of the most disastrous decisions. The Department of Health and Human Services, at that time led by Alex Azar, put a 20% bonus on the entire reimbursement for hospitalization in the United States and strongly incentivized and promoted the use of remdesivir. 
despite it not improving outcomes and having known toxicity, causing renal damage, renal failure, and hepatic failure. Now, this went on in the United States, and remdesivir in, uh, undoubtedly worsened hospital outcomes. They did not improve it. The WHO revisited their decision in May of 2022 and published in Lancet, the WHO Solidarity Group, to see if they were right because more studies were done. And they concluded they were right that remdesivir indeed did not improve mortality and had considerable toxicities. So in summary, our US government agencies worked feverishly to worsen outcomes in COVID-19 by impeding all efforts to treat patients as an outpatient to reduce hospitalization and death, and then promoting an agent that did not improve mortality, in fact, was toxic as an inpatient. Our government agencies worsened outcomes. And by my estimates, I think two-thirds of lives lost and hospitalizations could have been spared with an approach that would have been hands-off, allowing doctors to use their decisions, use uh, innovative protocols, and save lives as the patients were asking them to do. I have a hypothesis. I'd like your opinion on it, please, before we go to the protocols. A lot of people ask, well, the government has some of the best scientists, unlimited funding, and uh, it was full speed ahead. And then we had what was known as the emergency authorization use where they skipped a lot of the clinical trials necessary and the animal trials and put it right into the public. This is one of the fastest uh, vaccines in history. Normally it takes anywhere from seven to 10 years because of delayed effects that we see in other vaccines. However, we don't have them acknowledging it yet. Maybe they never will. But my belief is that the reason that they did not want to use any of your or anyone else's protocols, even though you had more than adequate clinical proof that it was working. At the very least, you should have conferences. You should have worldwide conferences on here are physicians from all over the world. Here's what we're doing that works. Why don't we work together and say, all right, on a priority list, here are the 20 drugs, all FDA approved, off-label use, that we've seen interferes in, in stopping the virus from damaging the lungs, for example. <clears throat> but none of that was advocated um, by the government. And the FDA and the CDC had total control over this. And the U.S. Health, Public Health Service, of which they are under the umbrella, along with Anthony Fauci's National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, is under that same umbrella. But it's like the tail wagging the dog. Anthony Fauci's been there forever, and uh, he mismanaged the AIDS pandemic. And so he was mismanaging this. He was the most important person. Collins was more important, technically speaking, but not in the real world. So is it possible that the reason they not only did not allow immediate use of whatever could work on a patient early on, knowing that it could help, these are not stupid people, they're well-educated, they know the literature, but because if the FDA's own rules state that if there's any other drug or medical approach that can be shown to do uh, what the drug that they're showing us, or the vaccine, then they can't use that emergency use authorization because there are other drugs that can do the same. <clears throat> Therefore, is it possible that the people behind the scenes were saying, attack remdesivir, 
uh, not attack uh, ivermectin, attack hydroxychloroquine, <clears throat> excuse me, and most importantly, attack the advocates of this early stage approach, multi, a multi-planned approach. Because if you don't, and someone says, hey, we're able to do with our protocol what you expect the vaccine to do, and it's all guessing on your part, we have proof. And therefore, by the FDA's own rules, they couldn't go ahead and just keep it exclusive to the vaccines. Your thoughts, please. I think it's much deeper than that because the suppression of early treatment was worldwide. And in other countries, they don't have emergency use authorized uh, laws or mechanisms there. They don't have to worry about that. But the same processes occurred worldwide. There was a worldwide suppression of early treatment, I think was very intentional to cause fear, suffering, hospitalization, and death intentionally in order to promote mass vaccination. And it was worldwide and was global. Now, in the United States, the emergency use authorization mechanism is a military mechanism. It's military. There have been military vaccines that have come out through that mechanism, like anthrax and smallpox, monkeypox. But it's not a public health mechanism. It's not. And under emergency use authorization, all we need is the Secretary of Health and Human Services at the time was Alex Azar and the Department of Defense to give the go signal to use these vaccines. That's all we needed. It, it was nothing more than that. Uh, under emergency use authorization, it's unclear if the FDA even has any power to, um, to say yes or no. The FDA is a sense a rubber stamp on this process. Now, hmm. the Department of Defense and its research unit, DARPA, in 2012 announced a program. It was called the ADAPT Protect P3 program, Pandemic Preparedness uh, Protection Program. And they announced in 2012, they will use messenger RNA genetic vaccines to end pandemics in 60 days. And so the Department of Defense and DARPA, and then the Biological Threat Unit of the NIH, BARDA, since 2012 publicly was working on genetic vaccines and BARDA consultants and contractors were advising them. They were uh, having billions of dollars go through these contractors and consultants to pharmaceutical companies. Moderna received its first multi-million dollar flow of money from the US government in 2013, 2013. So the military has always had an eye on this idea. And so when SARS-CoV-2 outbreak occurred, the military was very much ready to go with this program. Operation Warp Speed was just uh, human clinical trials of people who uh, were at risk to develop the illness. They were done quickly over three months. And as you point out, they had no assurances on short, uh, middle, or long-term safety. And so the press release indicated 90% reductions in uh, SARS-CoV-2 mild infections, like a common cold at home. Uh, no reductions in hospitalization and death, no single clinical trial ever showing reductions in hospitalizations and deaths with any COVID-19 vaccine as a primary secondary endpoint. So we knew that they could not solve the problem of people getting sick and being hospitalized. And in fact, they haven't. But an analysis by Freeman and colleagues from the original trials, once all the safety data were assembled, they concluded that the risks far outweighed the benefits. People taking the vaccines in the clinical trials were more likely to get sick and be hospitalized 
than ever being helped with COVID-19. So the vaccines from the very beginning never should have been introduced into the U.S. population. And by January 22nd, we had already had more deaths reported to our CDC with this vaccine than all vaccines combined. By January 2nd of 2021, should have been off the market. To make matters worse, families were panicking as people started to die with the vaccines, and they called Pfizer, the very first vaccine released on the market December 10th of 2020. And there, Pfizer dutifully wrote down who died and what happened. Pfizer recorded 1,223 deaths within 90 days of their vaccine. But Pfizer did not pull the vaccine off the market. Pfizer is a supplier in this program to what's considered a national security program. That's what this is. Pfizer does not make their own vaccines. Moderna doesn't. Moderna's vaccines are made by a biodefense contractor called Resilience. The AstraZeneca and Johnson Johnson, the two adenoviral vaccines, are made by a defense contractor, uh, a, a defense biosolutions outside of uh, Baltimore, Maryland. Under these emergency use authorized contracts, the pharmaceutical companies essentially are marketing shields. They don't produce the vaccines. They don't have any right to inspect them. In fact, no one inspects these vaccines uh, as their vials are filled. No one knows how much messenger RNA or adenoviral DNAs in, in each vial, nor any of the other ingredients. This is a U.S. military operation. It's a national security operation. And I think with that understanding, you can realize that that's the reason why it's not pulled off the market. That's the reason why the FDA and all the agencies are completely blind and willfully blind and will like not, not acknowledge any safety problems with the vaccines uh, that would cause one to not take a vaccine. And in clinical practice, we're concluding just the opposite. We, we can't find a single patient in which the vaccines would be sufficiently safe to administer. Thank you, I appreciate that insight. And now to what many people have been waiting for, and that is, could you please go through the protocols that you and other scientists, physicians have been using on your own patients with good results uh, to let them know that there is hope. Uh, and that is, again, just for someone who may come in late, those who have not been vaccinated but have had COVID and want to see that their immune system is protected. Those who have been vaccinated, who have not yet had side effects, but are fearful of what could be happening, especially with these self-organizing uh, lipid materials that we're finding. They, actually, the morticians found them. And now the pathologist, like Dr. Cole, is examining them and others. And there's, we don't know how many people are going to be affected as a percentage. We have more unknowns than we have knowns. We just know that there's a phenomena. And if I was a person that was vaccinated with two, three, four vaccines, and then I'm told, well, the more vaccines, the more susceptible, and I'm wondering, is something growing in my system that we don't have any way of knowing at this moment? And I don't want to find out when I have a heart attack or stroke or an embolism, what we can do for them. And also those who've been injured and whose voices are muted. They have no platforms. Can we help them? And if so, to what degree? Please take us on this uh, level of discussion. The form is once again yours. As we sit here today, uh, December 22nd, 2022, <laughs> the estimates are 94% of Americans have already had COVID-19. So they've already been through the illness. 
So in a sense, the illness has swept through our country. In a paper by Chin and colleagues, New England Journal of Medicine, October of 2022, very important paper, 59,000 prisoners, 17,000 staff in a congregate setting where they know every single case. What they found is when someone's already had COVID and now they're having a second case of COVID, there is a negligible risk of hospitalization and death. When I mean negligible, at zero. So what I'm telling you is now, going forward, there is a negligible risk that anybody getting COVID for the second or third time is going to have anything more than a common cold. There are a small fraction of people who still could have it for the first time, or those who are severely ill and disabled that may have a severe second case. And there, the McCullough Protocol or other ones similar to it, FLCC, uh, AFLDS, are perfectly fine. It starts at the very top. We use virucidal nasal washes and gargles to reduce the viral burden in the nose. Remember, there's never been a vaccine, a shot in the arm that's ever done anything for an infection in the nose. Everyone knows the swab is commonly taken from the nose. That's where the virus is. The vaccine has no impact there whatsoever, none. There, we can use dilute povidone iodine, dilute hydrogen peroxide, uh, commercially prepared xylitol, uh, colloidal silver. Now, believe it or not, even dilute baby shampoo has an effect in reducing viral replication in the nose. It's a mistake for anybody to get this illness and give no treatment up the nose. We're talking to spray up the nose, sniff it back and spit it out, do it twice on both sides, can be done every four to six hours, needs to be intense, 12 clinical studies, three large randomized trials, dramatic reductions in PCR positivity. It's the only way to reduce spread of the virus. And then market reductions in the need for hospitalization and death, just with nasal virucidal therapy. Now we combine that with gargling the same solutions, or you can gargle with regular scope or Listerine. This is very important. There shouldn't be a single person listening to this. Whoever develops a common cold, COVID, flu, respiratory syncytial virus, or any other upper respiratory tract infection without doing this, this is the single greatest learning of the entire pandemic. And I'm disappointed to report to you that every single company that tried to innovate here and do research or work with products was impeded by the Federal Trade Commission and the FDA. It was intentional as government agencies tried to shut down any nasal or oral therapy, uh, virucidal therapy to patients. Now, beyond that, we do recommend fresh air, uh, contagion control, and then moving on to nutraceuticals and supplements, uh, zinc 50 milligrams, vitamin C 3000 milligrams, vitamin D uh, temporarily at 20,000 international units a day, quercetin 500 milligrams twice a day, and then over-the-counter uh, uh, two drugs over the counter. One is famotidine, an antacid antihistamine at 80 milligrams a day, four times the daily dose. And then over the counter aspirin, 325 milligrams a day. That's called the OTC bundle in the McCullough protocol. This is all available to you over the counter, no doctor needed. Following this, there's evidence based behind every single element of this to reduce the intensity and duration of symptoms and reduce the proclivity for hospitalization. Now, beyond that, we can use intravenous monoclonal antibodies when available. Currently, they're all off the market. And then oral antivirals. These have been far overemphasized in the, um, in the media. And I think medically, they have a play a role. But I have to tell you, there are protocols worldwide that use none of these oral antivirals. But they include hydroxychloroquine, supported by over 300 studies, about a 25% uh, effect size. Ivermectin, supported by several hundred studies about a 50% effect size. Ivermectin, far more dynamic at 0.6 milligrams per kilogram inpatient and outpatient. 
uh, both hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin are in about three dozen government protocols worldwide as lead agents. Uh, beyond that, we can use uh, 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 Paxlovid, but that does have a CDC health warning on it that it causes rebound and prolongs the illness. And then molnupiravir, which is a um, uh, is a form of a, a polymerase inhibitor. Uh, we combine doxycycline and azithromycin to cover uh, bacterial super, in, uh, super infections, including atypical organisms. And then we move into anti-inflammatories, inhaled budesonide, a corticosteroid, oral prednisone, oral dexamethasone. We can use oral colchicine. That's actually, as an anti-inflammatory, the best studied of everything I've talked about in the co-corona trial, the highest quality prospective double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial, colchicine. Uh, and then uh, beyond that, it's use of anticoagulants and in high-risk patients, prior history of blood clotting. Uh, I think patients with prior vaccines and already the body is prone to blood clotting. We use blood thinners like subcutaneous low microwave heparin or oral novel anticoagulants. That's a lot to keep in mind. Uh, and you can go to my website, Peter McCullough MD, and the first thing that comes up is the McCullough protocol. It lays it out very clearly. This is the foundation behind the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons protocol and the Truth for Health Foundation protocol. Other protocols out there for outpatients, uh, AFLDS and FLCC, use similar principles, different drug combinations. It's not so much about any single drug. It's about using drugs to reduce viral replication, to uh, handle inflammation and handle thrombosis. It's that concept that reduces the risk of hospitalization and death. Thank you. Could you go through a few things a little more in detail? For example, let's just say that a person is healthy, probably if had COVID, but wants to do something that will help the immune system on a regular basis. Could you give us a preventative protocol? The, the most important prevention protocol would be the virucidal nasal washes and gargles probably twice a day. And there've been prevention protocols that show that's very uh, useful, um, has about a 50% <coughs> overall protection rate, particularly when in congregate settings, flying on an airplane. Um, and that's a very reasonable thing to do. There are uh, supportive data for the nutraceuticals and supplements that I mentioned, particularly zinc and particularly vitamin D. Uh, and every study, uh, I, I'm particularly interested in vitamin D, every study done so far displays a unique relationship between vitamin D intake, vitamin D levels, and reduced risks for COVID-19, as well as reduced mortality. So I think vitamin D is critical in a meta-analysis published uh, uh, levels over 50 conferred markedly reduced risks. Um, I think that can be done. Each person being leaner and fitter, uh, having greater cardiopulmonary reserve, they're much more likely to survive an episode of COVID or influenza or any other illness at this point in time. Uh, I think that's critical. For those with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, uh, we even have greater importance uh, on the use of aspirin uh, because there, both COVID-19, the respiratory illness and the vaccines have been associated with the progression of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, meaning myocardial infarction and stroke. So that's, I think, a brief summary of what can be done preventively. Thank you. A lot of young people are developing cardiac conditions, and yet they manifest complete health. Let's say soccer players, average age 23, and some are dropping dead at numbers we've never seen before. In fact, we did a, we went, Richard Gale and I looked at 
the last mortality rates for the last 10 years of soccer players. And uh, it's just a few per year worldwide. Now it's, it's bursting out the same way with other athletes. And then we're told that, well, myocarditis, it's transient, it's temporary, it's not a big deal. You're one of the world's leading cardiologists. Give us your opinion of myocarditis and some of the other conditions of the heart and how concerned should younger people in particular be? Now, I'm a practicing internist and cardiologist, so I do see and examine patients uh, with these conditions in my practice on a routine basis. I've also had three years of dedicated study to the illness and now the vaccine. So I consider myself as qualified as any infectious disease expert or any allergist or immunologist. And, and that's just how medical training goes. Three years is about equivalent to a fellowship. What we know here is from two papers, one by Mansugin and colleagues, the other one by Lepesek. These are the first prospective cohort studies. By the way, the FDA demanded Pfizer and Moderna do prospective cohort studies, and they haven't done them. Uh, so they were done by these outside groups. They both showed similar results on shots two or shot three, that 2.5% of people who take these vaccines sustain heart damage, 2.5%. And among them, about 57% or so are asymptomatic. They have no signs or symptoms they're sustaining heart damage. What we know in now 400 plus papers in the peer-reviewed literature on vaccine-induced myocarditis, that a scar forms in the heart, a small scar. And then in a fraction of people, probably under the right conditions, where there's a surge of adrenaline that can happen to, in three, three to six in the morning during sleep, as well as during sports. And those with particular genetic conditions, including a mutation in what's called the SCN5A <coughs> 5A channel, that a, a subfraction of those who develop a scar, in fact, are at risk for sudden death. And under the right conditions, a reentrant ventricular arrhythmia occurs, ventricular tachycardia, degenerates to ventricular fibrillation and sudden death. And if the patient's not promptly resuscitated, they die. And, and as you have pointed out, there have been record numbers of athletes dying, record numbers of citizens in all walks of life dying with no explanation. It's now called sudden adult death syndrome. It's a vaccine injury syndrome. And what's been said, and I've said this publicly, my counterpart in the UK, Dr. Asim Malhotra has also said this in a documentary we did together, the title of the, the film was Until Proven Otherwise. That is the next death that happens in an ostensibly healthy younger person without any antecedent illness, without any obvious explanation like a drug overdose, a suicide, or motor vehicle accident. They simply die. That it is the vaccine until proven otherwise. And so the burden now is on the family for the family to come out and say, yes, they've taken the vaccines, which ones and what doses. Or in fact, they haven't taken the vaccine, so we can rule it out. Uh, but I can tell you clearly at this point in time, it is the vaccine until proven otherwise. And now we see skyrocketing death rates in every single life insurance company records. Uh, the Society of Actuaries are, are, are having alarming uh, reports now that working age individuals, largely those who have been in these uh, corporate mandates, are having record rates of uh, uh, death. There's a European health insurance reporter that said since the vaccines have been released 2021 and 2022, death from unknown cause has skyrocketed. Now, prior to the vaccines, 
the causes of death in certainly in America are well known: forty percent heart disease, forty percent cancer, twenty percent other causes. But virtually every death in the United States has a known cause before COVID. What we're seeing now is a skyrocketing in deaths of unknown cause. And again, Americans should be looking towards the vaccine as the cause of death until proven otherwise. Every autopsy study has concluded that when an autopsy is done in such a death, in fact, the vaccine is the culprit. Would you suggest that preventatively uh, people on a daily basis, let's say something as easy and not expensive, take vitamin C, 3,000 milligrams, quercetin, vitamin D3, zinc, uh, magnesium, uh, as a way of simply helping their overall immune system and its antiviral effects. Curcumin is also very good in that respect. Yeah, I'm not a sufficiently expert in the natural, uh, the naturopathic holistic integrative realm to make those recommendations, but I certainly would respect those coming from others that the body probably needs some assistance. Remember those who've taken the vaccine and those who had the illness do have residual spike protein in their body. The spike protein is the injurious part of SARS-CoV-2. It's the spine on the ball of the virus. Data from Bruce Patterson, who leads the company Incel DX, he's found the S1 segment in severe cases of COVID patients inside CDC 16 monocytes for up to 15 months after the respiratory infection. Now, after the vaccine, he's finding both the S1 and S2 segment, the whole spike protein, in these cells as far as he can see in terms of analyses. As far as we know, this spike protein doesn't get out of the human body. Or if it does, it gets out of the human body on a very, very long-term basis. A, a autopsy study by Chertow and colleagues from the National Institutes of Health, this is, both, this is really a chilling report, of those who died with COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 is alive and in the human body replicating for months in these fatal cases. And it's found in virtually every organ uh, in the human body. So SARS-CoV-2, the infection, uh, we should look at it as a long-term uh, illness or injury to the body. And then the vaccines, vaccines are even worse because they install the genetic code. Uh, the genetic code itself is long-lasting. In fact, it may be permanent. Uh, for the spike protein. And then the spike protein is produced systemically by our own cells uh, for a prolonged duration of time. And we'd infer that the vaccine is worse than the respiratory illness because respiratory illness is treatable. We can keep it largely restricted to the sinuses without systemic invasion. However, the vaccines are directly systemically given in a intramuscular injection. The body has no way of defending off the spike protein as it's being produced in somatic cells throughout the body. Uh, the body is, in a sense, helpless to defend against the damage that the vaccine is doing within an hour of it being installed in the human body. But weren't we told that once you're vaccinated in the deltoid <clears throat> muscle, that it would be gone in a matter of days? That's a, a, a complete falsehood. Papers on the lipid nanoparticle long before COVID-19 uh, uh, papers were published, uh, papers from the Chinese, for instance, showed the lipid nanoparticles distribute throughout the entire body. In fact, they're used as a drug delivery mechanism in drug development. So it's known that they go to the brain, the heart, the adrenal glands, the reproductive organs. So it was known ahead of time it would not stay in the arm. And I think for anybody to even believe that 
in the scientific world, they're simply not paying attention to drug development trends. There's no way it was going to stay in the arm. This was uh, genetic material loaded on lipid nanoparticles, which everyone knew or should have known was going to go everywhere in the human body. In fact, we knew or should have known that the genetic material would go into the brain and install the genetic code uh, into support cells in the brain, probably uh, uh, various forms of dendritic cells, and produce the lethal Wuhan spike protein in the human brain. And that's happened in almost everyone who's taken the vaccine. The same process occurs in the heart, the adrenal glands, the reproductive organs. And in August of 2020, as a scientist, I published four lawmakers in Washington. This is before the vaccines were released, a paper published in The Hill, and it was titled The Great Gamble of the COVID-19 Vaccine Development Program. I may have been the only public figure to try to warn lawmakers and warn America about the dangers of what was being proposed in these vaccines. And boy, was I right. My final question. We have not been a healthy nation for the past 40 years. <clears throat> Our life expectancy has been reduced a little over three years in the last three years, which means that of all the developed countries, almost 40 developed countries, we're dead last. Uh, there are people in Japan living into their 90s, but in the United States now, it was 78.3 years, now it's down around 75 years. But we have the largest group of obese adults per population of any country in the world. Children the same. We have children with heart disease, arthritis. I'm sure you've seen this. We have a lot of autoimmune conditions. So wouldn't it just be sensible that if someone already is fighting a dysregulated immune response on a day-to-day -day basis, lupus, whatever it is they might have, that now you're going to give them something that then automatically triggers the immune system as if it were five-alarm fire. How does it make sense if a person already is immune compromised to put something that's going to stimulate that immune system, especially if they have comorbidities and are susceptible because of those comorbidities, including obesity? The Chinese published a paper in 2020 analyzing the response on multifaceted uh, laboratory panels of people with a range of illnesses, diabetes, obesity, and other conditions after they've taken the vaccines before and after. And the Chinese concluded that it's those people, the obese, those with diabetes, the frail with multiple diseases, that they were going to have side effects with the vaccines. They were seeing profiles of uh, inflammation of uh, tissue damage occurring uh, reflected by these tests in individuals. And the Chinese, in a sense, warned us that the, ge the genetic vaccines were going to be a disaster. And in fact, that's what we've seen in analysis by McLaughlin and colleagues demonstrated. Those who die with the vaccine within a few hours of taking it are the most frail and elderly people in our societies, the ones with the most diseases and illnesses. Those who develop blood clots uh, and other problems already have risk factors, including obesity, blood disorders, immobility, et cetera. Now, fortunately, to end on a bright note, uh, on today's issue of JAMA, there's a report on nursing homes. Remember, nursing homes is the one area where there was a significant and consistent risk of hospitalization and death with COVID. In nursing homes now, the rate of taking these vaccines among any nursing home residents 
is 45% and dropping. And the rate of nursing home workers taking it is 22% and dropping. So the nursing homes, which were disproportionately affected with COVID and disproportionately affected with vaccine deaths, have finally learned a lesson, despite the government narrative of safe and effective, um, and despite the, 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 the really distorted government preoccupation on young people and children and infants age six months and up to take COVID-19 vaccines and the CDC putting COVID-19 vaccines on the childhood schedule, the focus should have always been on the seniors. And we should have always had treatment programs and programs to improve the health of our seniors and protect them. And we should have never exposed seniors or anyone through the age continuum to these COVID-19 vaccines. Dr. McCullough, thank you very much, not only for preparing today to help people better understand what their options are, but also I know that you have been a target and you've had an impeccable career along with Dr. Malone and others who've also been attacked. And uh, I just want to say that those of us who are in the health field, public health field, uh, we see your sacrifice and we are there to support you and your efforts. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Gary Knoll. Thank you all for watching, listening, 